Thank you so much for that welcome. And I'd like to start by, um, by acknowledging the Manafenoa of this place where we're in Hemihi Tene Kina Iwi Manafenoa, Moiraki, Pukateraki, Otakau, Hokanui. And welcome to you all. Welcome to our event tonight here at Otago Museum. What a pleasure it is to introduce our guest. As a writer and a filmmaker, it's no hyperbole to say he has redefined the medium, the medium of cinema, from the abyss to Avatar, Terminator to Titanic. These are stories designed with wonder and awe in mind. Stories created while their maker was sometimes developing the technology to tell these stories, even as the cameras were rolling. Talk about building the plane while you're flying it. But the films are only part of the story. That same visionary design sensibility and that genius for innovation has also been applied to his passion for exploring our oceans. As you'll know if you've been around the exhibition upstairs, it is a testament to a remarkable career as an underwater explorer and an exhibition leader and an extraordinary commitment to curiosity a commitment to problem solving, to pushing the boundaries of design technology, to leadership and teamwork, and all with the aim of exploring the last frontiers of our planet. He's an artist, an explorer, an environmentalist, a consistent innovator, someone who doesn't seem to have ever heard of the phrase, no can do. And his fields of endeavor are all the richer for it. Please join me in welcoming James Cameron. That was very kind. Now I know you're going to get rough on me. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of hard questions. No. Well, when I was visiting the exhibition upstairs and I came to the, um, to the trench, I thought about the mountaineer George Mallory. And I thought about what he said when they asked him, mm -hmm. why Everest? Because it's there. Yeah. Same for you? Well, I think, I think there are mysteries out there. I mean, the universe is filled with mysteries, and we're going to be exploring those mysteries for the next million years or whatever, because human beings are we're curious monkeys. We're you know, curious hominins, and we have to know what's over, the, what's over the hill. Some people have it stronger than others. And uh, you know, Don Walsh, who's the other... Uh, the, you know, the guy who went down in 1960 was Jacques Picard to, to the Challenger Deep, uh, and is a, is a friend of mine, and he says that, um, that exploration is just curiosity acted upon. So some people are curious and they want to know, but they don't act upon it to go and find out. And uh, I've, I've just always wanted to sort of, you know, I'm sure you push, the, push the boundaries with technology and that sort of thing. That's the enabler that gets you there. But it's also just wanting to go. I call it bearing witness. You go to bear witness, you go to see it, and you, you act as a kind of um, uh, really conduit for that experience to the rest of the world. So as a filmmaker, you innately want to tell a story. You come back and you tell the story. Well, that's, that, that's a really important part of your story, the, the, the human experience as part of these expeditions, because you're gathering information, but it's not just about the data for you, is yeah, it? Yeah, no, no, it's about the narrative. And I think that's a good thing, because scientists traditionally, and I know some very good communicators you know, who are scientists, but traditionally they either shun it because they don't want the scrutiny or they don't want to you know, have the sort of the Carl Sagan effect, which can, unless you're Carl Sagan, it can tend to taint your career as a, a scientist. Or they're just not good at it. You know, they're really good at their investigation and their, and their work and they live a life of the mind, but they're not good communicators. Um, there are exceptions and we need to, to have more of those exceptions because we really need people that can speak for science and for investigation, research, and, and exploration. You know, I mean, I think metaphorically you can be exploring a new microbe in a lab, but to me exploration is going someplace and going someplace new and seeing something new. I see there's a lot of young people in the audience and you say, people ask you, why go? And you often say, children would never 
no, ask that no, question. You know, I mean, I think you know, people ask, you know, why, why did you want to build a sub and, and dive to the deepest spot in the ocean? And I've never gotten that question from a seven-year-old. <laughs> the seven-year-old would say, well, why wouldn't you want to build a sub and go, <laughs> go to the deepest spot in the ocean? I want to go. Right? Keeping that sense of wonder alive, though, as time goes yeah, by. Yeah, it's hard. It is a discipline, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, then reality sets in, and it's like, how hard is that going to be? What materials yeah. do you need? How are you going to c compose your team? Yeah. What engineering hurdles are you going to have? Um, fortunately, I find it therapeutic to solve hard engineering problems. You know, there's a million things going on in a movie. It can be an enormous amount of pressure. My mind tends to go to an engineering problem to get away from it. Soothing. So, yeah, some people just, just, you know, have a Chardonnay and, and <laughs> watch Netflix, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm not saying I don't do that too, but I, mm. I prefer to solve an engineering problem. Which explains so much about the trajectory of your art, doesn't it? I mean, the abyss mm -hmm. is upstairs as part of that story. You were developing the technology that you needed to tell that story as yeah. you were telling it. It was a, the, the abyss, um, which turns, turned 30 in August, believe it or Happy not. Happy birthday. 30 years ago I was making that film. It was a real turning point for me because a couple of things happened on that movie. I got to meet a lot of my kind of heroes who were real explorers, like Dr. Robert Ballard and some of the robotics uh, engineers at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, which is kind of the, the US equivalent to NIWA. And so I went from making a science fiction movie where I was imagining subs and vehicles and so on to the people who actually do it. And so that was the first step down the path toward the possibility of actually doing it myself, working with these guys and really doing deep ocean exploration. The other thing that happened on the abyss is there's a little scene, if you've ever seen the movie, there's a little scene in the middle of the film that has a completely computer-generated character, a soft surface character that makes faces and so on. It's, it's sort of living water. And it was a huge, huge breakthrough uh, in its time. And I called it dreaming with your eyes wide open, to see something like that that seems so impossible, very surreal. And that was another big turning point for me because I saw that you could actually entertain by showing people something that they had previously only seen in their own imagination or in their dreams. Where did it live in your mind? You know, if it hadn't been seen before, if it hadn't been in the world before? Oh, um, yeah, that's a good point. You know, I, <laughs> I wonder that about a lot of your films. Well, dream imagery, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, look, our, our dreams are just the brain kind of mashing things up and putting ideas together and constantly just painting this ongoing picture or telling this story all night long. You know, some people don't remember them, some people do. I get a lot of story ideas from dreams. Sometimes they're very surreal, sometimes they're disturbing, but then I start to, I start to connect the dots and put characters into it and, and turn them into movies. Terminator came from a dream yes, in Italy, I think, is that right? Done your research, yeah, absolutely. That image of a, of a steel skeleton emerging from a fire, that came straight out of a dream, and then I just built a story around that picture. And there's a theme here, isn't there, of the braiding of the real, of mm -hmm. things from nature, mm -hmm. organic shapes or anatomy yeah. Yeah. with technology, with things that hadn't yet sure. existed. I think braiding is a really interesting term. I was flying in and, and you know, as I was flying down here looking at the braided rivers in the mm. Canterbury Plain and just really thinking about how these are different streams that just constantly cross each other. And that's kind of the effect I get when I walk through the exhibit here. I see how the art and the narrative storytelling interwove with the technical development to make either the movies possible or the documentaries of the, of the deep expeditions possible. The two, the two worked together beautifully. Mm. Uh, I, I thought, you know, when I see it all in retrospect, I don't think that was the big plan. Big plan was just go take a look. You know, <laughs> again, it all boils down to ex exploration, I mean, to curiosity. That's what drives exploration. It's lovely that we're doing this, that we're having this conversation in front of an audience in a museum because about your, your deep ocean work, yeah. because I believe it was a visit to a museum in Toronto mm. where, where you saw where it all started. Can you tell us about that? 
Well, I've got a good friend. He's in his, in his 80s now, Dr. Joe McGinnis, but he was one of Canada's leading oceanographers, if not the leading oceanographer. This was back in the 70s. And um, for fun, I used to go to museums and, and sketch. And uh, when I was about 14, so that would have been 69 or 70, um, I was at the Royal Ontario Museum, and there was a, a, a display, a big vehicle was on display out in front of the museum. And I walked around it, and I, I sort of understood innately what it was. It, was. it had a big ballast weight at the bottom and a platform, and it had a kind of dome windows, and, and it was entered through, uh, through the bottom. It was an underwater habitat, and it was built by Dr. Joseph McGinnis. So I did some sketches of it, and they're actually in the, they're in the uh, exhibit space. Did some sketches of it, and then I thought, I'm going to contact this guy. So I wrote him a letter. How old were you? 14 or 15, something like that. I'm going to contact, I want to build one of these. So actually, so then I started thinking about how I would build my own, and then I thought, I don't know where you get the windows. So I, I wrote him a letter, and it was, you know, <laughs> Dr. McGinnis, I'm building my own sublimnos. His thing was called sublimnos. I'm building my own underwater habitat, and I'm going to get in it. Um, what do you use for windows? <laughs> <laughs> and he sent me back specific Great question, to yeah. the point. Yeah, yes. he actually sent me back the specifications for the particular type of acrylic that was used for the windows of the Sublimnos and how I could get them. So I, I wrote to the uh, Rom and Haas, the acrylic company, and they sent me a sample, about a you know, foot and a half square of, of one-inch acrylic. And I thought, oh, I'm half done. I've got my window. <laughs> <laughs> So I contacted him years later, and he actually has come out with me on a, a couple of the expeditions and uh, actually written books about, uh, about the expeditions, but his, his fascination is leadership, and I'm always struggling to be a better leader uh, because I think it's critical when you're, when you're doing things with small teams, and I definitely recommend small teams for, for um, uh, engineering design and for building new vehicles and prototypes and things like that. Because you sit around in a room with, with a handful of, of really smart people and it's fun and it's exciting and the ideas are flowing. When it turns into the, the big mega projects, it, it just breaks down in bureaucracy and creativity kind of just dies. They're really smart and they're, they're the people, as you say, but they're from a range of different disciplines, yeah, aren't yeah. there? That's a really interesting aspect of the work you've been doing in the ocean, isn't it? How that sure. pan-disciplinary... I mean, when, when we built the Deep Sea Challenge vehicle, the, the guy that designed the batteries had only worked on buses, electric buses. And there was a, a, a young guy who was, you know, basically had just gotten his PhD, I think, in electronics and was doing robotics, but it was all dry land robotics. He had never worked on a sub, he had never been to sea, he had never been underwater. He wound up coming out on the expedition <laughs> <laughs> and holding on to the railing most of the time. But you know, I wanted the people who actually built the vehicle to come, with, to come out with us. So I, I figured it was easier to, to, to teach these guys how to survive on a ship at sea than to uh, try to explain to some, some seasoned sea dog how to fix the electronics inside the, the brain of the vehicle. On that, incidentally, how long do you think it takes to get your sea legs? I mean, did it take you a long time to get yours? Well, it depends on what drugs you take. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to have a stomach. I mean, if you could, there's some people that have an absolute cast iron stomach, and then you could, you could spin them around 100 times, and it doesn't even affect them. And then other people throw up just watching the ocean, right? I'm about dead center which means that if, I, if you get a sea state much, much above a Beaufort, you know, four or so, I'm, I'm taking something. But I think that's kind of a tribute to the, to the drive and the curiosity and so on. I don't let a little thing like, like puking over the railing keep me from being an ocean explorer, <laughs> you know? It's like, that's just a detail. There's something that's almost feels, in retrospect at least, fated about this relationship between you and the ocean. I mean, upstairs, it says on the exhibition, you'll have seen it, it says, it's a quote from you, I was in love with the ocean before we ever met. Yeah. That's very romantic. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, I think that's true. I mean, it was, uh, you guys are probably too young to have heard of a guy named Jacques Cousteau. You know who Jacques Cousteau is? Yeah, have you seen The Life here. Aquatic? Right. Maybe. 
So obviously the first of the, of the great telegenic explorers that really know, knew how to use this new medium of television and bring the deep ocean, the wonders of the ocean, not even that deep, they weren't going that deep, but the wonders of the ocean into the, the living rooms of the world. And he did an enormous amount to get people excited about the oceans in the 60s and the 70s. And at first it was just, look at all the cool stuff. And then it became about, we have to protect this. Because mm -hmm. he was even then starting to see degradation of the reefs and populations that were, you know, of, of animals that were at risk. So he was my example as a, as a teenager. You know, I wanted to be like him. I wanted to live on that ship. But I lived landlocked, uh, you know, 400 miles from the ocean. I learned to scuba dive in a pool, and my first open water dive was in a river, you know, in Canada. So I, it, was, it was even a couple of years after that that I first did my first open water dives in the, in the actual ocean. That must have been a revelation to you. Oh, it was. It was amazing. Do you remember it? Oh, clearly. Absolutely clearly. Yeah, crystal clear. And there have been many, many dives since then, but that one is still crystal clear in your memory. Yeah, yeah. The f I think your first dive and your first few dives, you know, remain such burned-in memories because it's such an overwhelming experience to suddenly be able to fly freely in a three-dimensional environment and to see these animals that, that live there. Even if you've been a free diver, your first scuba dives, I think, have that, have that impact. But, um, and you know, of course, thousands of hours later and having also spent thousands of hours filming underwater, like for movies, mm. you know, it's, it's now it's so second nature, I, I don't even think about it. And, and there are different emotions and different histories associated with the different parts of the ocean that you've been to. I mean, Titanic mm. is a part of our collective history, a monument to hubris well, for, you, for many people. Um, even for you growing up, I guess, in, in Ireland, Cork, yeah. which is near Cobe, where the t last Titanic last saw land as it, as it steamed away from the Irish coast. Um, yeah, and I think that's something that's in our collective consciousness. Titanic is the quintessential example of pride goeth before a fall, hubris, you know. And I think we're liver living in a very hubristic time right now where we think that our, our, the power of our mind and our technology is going to save us from anything that, that comes along. And uh, when in fact it's going to take a lot of hard decisions to get through the crises that are of our own making. And I think we all, we all know what they are. Mm. And I'll come back to that because that's an important strand in, in your work. But just to go back to Cousteau, in a way, that narration of the experience, mm -hmm. that bringing back of the idea, tell me about that impulse as it related to Titanic. What was it like when you came up from that first dive? It's interesting. My first dive at Titanic, um, I was very cold and calculating, like an astronaut trying to accomplish the mission. I had things I had to do, and I didn't allow myself to open emotionally while I was on the dive. I got back to my cabin on the, on the Russian research ship after I'd spent 16 hours in the submersible, and I sat down, and it all flooded back, and I realized I had been sitting in a sub on the deck of the ship right where the band played, right by the first-class entrance on the on the port side near lifeboat eight or lifeboat six. And it just all flooded back and, and uh, I was kind of overwhelmed by emotion at that point. And then I, I kind of made, I mean, I you know, literally was tearing up thinking of the tragedy and the people because I didn't go there without having studied the history of it very carefully in planning for the expedition. So then I thought, I have to always remind myself to be present you know, just be present, just be there, just bear witness. That's where I came up with the idea. So I literally, typically, would write it into my, into my instructions to myself for the dive. Stop, look, you know, and then do this and then do that, you know. I think Willie Nelson has something, a maxim. He says, wherever you are, be there. Be there. Yeah. Be there. Be there. Yeah. Because you're never going to be there again. You know, and you do, I think as a filmmaker, certainly, or as a, as a writer, you have a responsibility to come back and tell the story to others because we can't all get in a sub and go down to Titanic. So, you know, that's, a, and I think I tend to be very aware of that responsibility in the moment 
which is why I'm running the 3D cameras and I'm struggling to get the shot and I'm talking the whole time and laying it down on tape so that it's all, it's all there. So I think you become a kind of a hum human conduit for the experience for everybody else that, that doesn't get to make that dive. Well, they're massively complementary in that way, aren't they? Aren't they both of those enterprises? Because as a director, telling a story with a human heart, it must be very important to be present. Yeah, you have to not only be present yourself, but you have to, you have to be able to shift your, your consciousness into the, to the mind of the actor as well and be in touch with, with their emotions and if it's multiple characters in the, in the scene. Mm. And so, uh, and actors are the, are the great professionals at being present. They are nothing if not present. They're mm. right there, you know, just all raw, raw emotion. And we could all take a, a lesson from that ability to kind of switch that on and connect. You know, mm. if you watch two actors working, you see it in every movie, the, their eyes are moving over each other's faces at, at this kind of high rate. You know, it's an almost heightened state of awareness. I don't act, but I work with actors obviously mm. all the time. Did you make the film as the quickest way of getting back <laughs> to the boat? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, sure. <laughs> we made, I made Titanic so that I could go dive Titanic. <laughs> and then we made some money with Titanic, so then we just went and did it some more. <laughs> and the process developed, you know, deep ocean stereoscopic camera systems and small robotic vehicles that would spool a fiber optic so that they could, they could go and explore in, in very complicated uh, small spaces and so on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we developed a whole bunch of new systems to do that. Is that why it's a love story? I'm, I'm really interested in that tension mm, mm. between the emotional and the technological. You know, this is the grand love story of Jack and Rose. Yeah. But the first image in, in the film is an image of machines, isn't it? Or the first yeah. scene is those submersibles beeping I, in the darkness. I think, you know, uh, I had sort of a bit of a reputation as a technical director at that point, meaning, you know, innovation and technology, the CG stuff, Terminator 2, True mm -hmm. Lies, things like that that were big, big action films. And I, there was this sense in Hollywood, and I think it still exists, that you can be a humanistic filmmaker or you can be a technical filmmaker, but you can't be both. And I think one of the things that appealed to me about Titanic was to show that you can use the technology to tell a story, and if you've done it right, it disappears. Mm. And all you care about is the people. Steven Spielberg didn't buy that. I mean, he said, you're an emotional director. You're <laughs> a teller. Some of you will know the, the series of conversations that I'm talking about, um, James Cameron's story of science fiction, which I've spent far too much time watching. But it's, it's but interviews. But cool interviews. Yeah. I mean, to, uh, it was such a dream for me to get to talk to these guys. I knew most of them, but to really get them to open up about their art and their thought process. He said E.T. wasn't a story of an alien. It's a story of a young boy whose parents are getting divorced. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you, you, no matter what a story appears to be about, if it's about robots or time travel or outer space or whatever, it's really about us and some universality of human interaction, relationship. I always say all my movies are love stories. Mm. You know, Aliens is a love story. It's a love story between a woman who's lost a daughter and the daughter that she sort of takes on to protect. And so it's a maternal, maternal love story. Mm. The love stories can be on, I call them axes, the axis between the two characters. Love stories can be on all kinds of axes. Titanic was the classic love story in the Romeo and Juliet boy meets girl kind of, kind of mm. way. That's how I pitched it, by the way. I took this beautiful painting of Titanic sinking all lit up with the lifeboats going away, just kind of almost you know, elegantly beautiful in, 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 as, it, as it was sinking. And I set it on the, the coffee table at the head of 20th Century Fox's office, and I said, Romeo and Juliet, there. So what is it? Romeo and Juliet, there, four words. Raised $130 million with four words. Green light. Because <laughs> they got it. They were like, wow, that's great. You know? But something so, else. To their credit, they actually got it. <laughs> they usually don't, by the way. <laughs> something else that defines 
your your films though and you and George Lucas had a conversation about this you know it, it, they're talking about if you can imagine just the joy of creating worlds and and George Lucas is saying to you isn't it great you can do whatever you want but in your films laws apply yeah. the laws of thermodynamics apply the laws of gravity and motion they all apply right well, thank you for that. Uh, I think it's important when you're building a world that people want to invest in in terms of their time and their energy, uh, whether it's Game of Thrones or whatever, uh, or you know, Avatar, the world of Pandora, is that it, it has to be internally consistent. It has to have some kind of a rule set. Even if it's got floating mountains, there has to be a rule set. And uh, I think that's fundamental to, to creating a great work of fantasy, that it's not just a lot of sporadic kind of surreal imagery that it actually, it has a kind of consistency to it. So for Avatar, for example, we created a culture. We created the Navi culture with a language and, and with a set of behaviors that were consistent with a belief system and so on. Not all of it made it into the film. In fact, only a small fraction did, but we knew it. And so what surfaced in the film, even though it was just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, mm. all looked like it belonged there. And do you think an audience needs that, responds to that authenticity? I think if you look at the, at the, the fantasy works, whether they're, whether they're literary or whether they're film that have endured, you know, maybe Lord of the Rings would be a great example. There's, um, there's a degree of detail and there's a degree, a degree of kind of rightness to what you're seeing, that it all seems to be of that same, same fabric. Tolkien called it um, the distant mountains. So you don't go to the distant mountains, but they're always there. You know, they kind of surround it. So the mm. specific narrative is surrounded by a kind of a greater uh, bit of storytelling. And, and that's what takes a lot of the work. I think in writing the new Avatar films, I know we're getting off from exploration, but it's cool. Um, <laughs> the, the, writing the new Avatar films, I spent a year just making notes. Just making notes. And the, on day one with, the, with my writer's group, I handed them 1,400 pages of notes about the world and the cultures and the animals and all that sort of thing. And we, that's where we started. That's where our blank page started. But it circles back to exploration, doesn't it? Sure. Because it is that world that, that exists in the oceans, for example. Sure. And it all, it all makes sense and it all interconnects. And it's up, to, it's up to human science to explore those connections and see why things are the way they are. And sometimes things are just very enigmatic and puzzling. And sometimes you just have this bonanza of new information. When they discovered the hydrothermal vents back in the, in the late 70s, they literally discovered an entirely new way for things to live. Everything that had ever been seen previously was essentially living on sunlight or the things that were produced by sunlight, plant materials and so on, which would then decay and feed bacteria and fungi and all that sort of thing. But it all was powered by the sun. Then they went down and found hydrothermal vents where there were entire animal communities that had nothing to do with the sun. The sun could go out, and they wouldn't know for quite a while. It was all driven by the heat energy of the earth, heating up water and bringing chemicals to the, up in, uh, you know, into that environment. And then they learned to live off these chemicals that would kill us almost instantly. Hydrogen sulfide is extremely toxic. These things are living on hydrogen sulfide. And yet they have the same kind of DNA, the same kind of cell structure that we have. But it was just nature putting the pieces together in a completely different way. And then that blew the doors off the possibilities for where you could find life on Earth and mm. in the solar system. Well, yes. You know, growing up, you were the era of Cousteau, but you were also the era of the space race. Could it have gone the other way for you, do you think? I was fascinated by space, and, and uh, I, th I think I would have been perfectly happy to, to spend time going into space, but it seemed like there wasn't as much of an important story there. We were mostly, we were mostly just sort of going around the Earth really fast, bouncing off walls in microgravity and trying to think up excuses for science in microgravity, which is of micro-importance versus the ocean from which life emerged that keeps us alive, that moderates our temperature, that moderates our carbon cycle and our hyd hydrological cycles and so on. And so much of, our, of life on Earth is dependent on the ocean and we know so little about it and there's such a disproportion in spending. I kind of turn my spotlight on, on the ocean, so, you know, so to speak. You were down there on your own 
as a moment of solitariness. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's, what was it like? It's, I think there's something really uh, interesting, almost spiritually, about being alone in such a remote place. I'm sure it might have felt like that to, uh, you know, Neil Armstrong stepping out onto the moon and looking up and seeing the earth from so far away before, you know, Buzz Aldrin got out, hung out with him on the surface there. Um, it it kind of gives you a sense of, of, first of all, being connected to everything. Secondly, a kind of awe at the scope of, of the world that hasn't been seen and hasn't been explored. Because I know I'm looking at a place that nobody's ever seen, no human eyes have ever seen. And then there's the responsibility to, to try to, to communicate that. But you do feel blessed in that moment. And uh, you know, there's a, there's a book called Deep Survival. It's a very interesting book. It was written by a guy, I think his name is David Gonzalez. And it's about a whole bunch, a number of people that survived against almost impossible odds, usually by themselves, from plane crashes, being lost in the mountains, all kinds of bad stuff happened to them. Every, he tried to find the common thread, like what, what is the survivor? What is the common thread? They were all different. He couldn't put the pieces together and he found the one thing that they all had in common, the one thing, was that at some point in their trial where they were virtually certain that they were gonna die in a horrible way, like starving or freezing or whatever it was, they felt that they were in the place they were supposed to be and they were supposed to be seeing and experiencing what they were seeing mm -hmm. and that it was the greatest gift they ever had and they all had that. So I'm thinking that exploration is like that. You, when you're in that moment, when you're present, you believe you're where you're supposed to be mm. and you're supposed to be there seeing it. I don't mean in some divine way necessarily, but that there's something that resonates with kind of who you are in the space that you're in that you've put yourself in by, by choice, which is the difference, of course. All those deep survival stories were about mm. people that they didn't choose to get blown out of an airplane that was breaking up and wind up sitting in an airplane seat in the middle of the jungle in the Amazon. That's a bad thing. They mm. didn't choose it. Not a great day at the office. Not I... a great day at the <laughs> office. <laughs> but that question of perspective is an interesting one to explore. How does that f feed in? Because you'd have been going from this work into your other work, right? Yeah, into, yeah. into Hollywood, into everything that comes with that. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think challenge is a part of it and wanting to challenge oneself. You know, uh, I think, I don't want to say an impossible task, a difficult task, difficult problems are interesting. And I like to surround myself with people who are fascinated by, by difficult problems. Because you get this amazing kind of team sort of spirit that comes from that. It's a, it's a bond. We're solving something together. And there's a certain kind of person that likes to do hard stuff. Because nobody else has done it. You know, it's a way of you know, proving yourself, I guess. When did you first know you were that kind of person? I think when I got all the other kids on my block to help me build an airplane. <laughs> it didn't fly, it didn't fly. We hung it from a tree, but we built an airplane yeah. and got in it at the age of seven or whatever, you know. And thinking about you as a young person, the, the other aspect of that story about going to see the submersible, it was your mom who, who took you out of school for the day. Yeah. You wagged school, as yeah. we say in New Zealand, yeah. to go and see the <laughs> submersible. Yeah. Well, my mother was, was very encouraging about uh, you know, painting and drawing, all the things, and my curiosity. And she, like, we thought it was cool when I was probably 10 to sign up for a college geology class at night and go, and go learn about rocks, to just do that together. That was like my idea of a good time when I was 10 years old. So you can tell I was a geekosaurus, uh, you know. Um, but she encouraged that. So she encouraged that curiosity and acting upon the curiosity. So I would like to hope that the people who act on their curiosity are gonna come here to this museum and they can check out this exhibit, but then they can wander around and see all the other mm. amazing stuff here too. It's important to have those people who believe in you though, isn't it? I mean, that, that thread yeah. of mentorship is running through your story. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's just, uh, it's just the people that um, 
think you can actually accomplish something. You know, I mean, I, I remember that now. I've got, I've got five kids of my own, and I'm, I'm, you know, I don't want to tell them it's going to be easy, but I do want to tell them they have the capacity. They have the capacity to do it, and they have the capacity to do whatever they want to do, and they're much more likely to do the thing that they want to do and care about. And, you know, my, my wife Susie started a school in California, which is based on the principle of passion-based learning. So the teachers have to ask the children what it is they want to do, and then it's the teacher's job to figure out how to get the math and the science and the history and everything to somehow relate to being a skateboarder. Mm. But they do it. They do it. And the kids get to follow their, follow their passion. And, the, and along the way, they learn the history of California or comparative religion or, or trigonometry or whatever it is along the way, you know. And it's, it's really much more the way kind of life works for the, for the human mind. You had a teacher, didn't you, who told you you had boundless potential, unlimited potential. Yeah, there was, so my, my high school biology teacher encouraged us to start a theater arts program at my high school, which was a very athletics-based high school. There was absolutely zero bandwidth there for anything to do with the arts or, or, or sciences. If you weren't the captain of the football team, you were, you were nobody, right? But this guy said, you know, maybe you should start a theater arts program. So we did. We, I, we just got a bunch of kids together, and we just did it on our own time, and we built sets, and we put on plays. We wrote plays, put them on, hijacked all the lighting and audiovisual equipment in the school, and, and basically ran wild. And it's still there. It's still one of the best theater arts programs in the, in the, whole, in the whole district. But um, he came up to me in the hallway one day, and he said, you know, you have unlimited potential. <laughs> and walked away. <laughs> and it actually was really empowering. Because, you know, when you're a kid... Did he mean you specifically? You, James Cameron, have unlimited potential or, or one has? Yeah, no, I, no, he meant me. He meant you. He meant me. <laughs> he, he'd, he'd seen me in action, you know, already. Bossing everybody around. But... Uh, you know, he didn't explain it. He just said it and then and kind of walked away. Mm. But I, I think it's so important to tell kids that they can, they can do it and, uh, you know, that you can act on your dreams mm. and that something can actually come of it that could be pretty amazing. Did but you've got to work hard at it, though. That's the thing. Did he get in touch, you know, after Titanic or Avatar and I, say, you've fulfilled it? I wanted to call, call him up and thank him when I found out that he had, mm. had died, unfortunately, quite young. Mm. Yeah, sad, but anyway, he was... Uh, but it, it shows you, I mean, I don't know, some of you may be teachers or, or in a mentorship kind of, kind of role. It's really important what you say and how you encourage and guide and, and shape kids because they're, I'm sure you know from your own childhood, you're just so impressionable at that age. Mm. You talk about, you know, big problems and difficult problems and... I imagine your exploration work has brought you into direct contact with the consequences of one of the most difficult existential problems we are currently looking at as, as a species. Yeah, yeah. It's the Anthropocene era and the, and the sixth great mass extinction, which we are actually... This time around, we are the comet. Mm. You know, the dinosaurs got nuked by, a, by an asteroid or a comet, and this time we're the comet. And the consequences to nature are going to be about the same uh, if we don't change. And so far, we're really doing relatively little if you really look at the, at the big picture. I think there are a lot of people of good conscience who are changing the way they live and act and so on. We're just going to need a whole lot, whole lot more of that. Um, but it, it is an existential threat, I think, if, if not to our species actually going extinct. Certainly extinct. Certainly our way of life will be threatened. And, uh, you know, so we've got to act on it. And it's daunting, you know. And, and how, do you, how do you empower people? How do you give them something to mm. do? Because I think that otherwise people tune out. If you don't give them something to do that makes them feel good about themselves and that, they, that we can make a difference. And so, people, and then, so then people always say, all right, what can I do? And I tell them, and they don't want to do it. <laughs> because the biggest thing you can do actually as an individual is just change what you eat. It has an enormous effect on ecosystems, on you know, biodiversity loss, uh, rainforest, 
water pollution and uh, you know, climate, greenhouse forcing, all of those things has enormous impact. This is a global problem, yeah. isn't it? That's, see, this is the big problem is that it, it, right now the trend lines are going the wrong direction. You've got isolationism, you've got these, these populist governments that are sort of closing their mm. doors, you've got trade wars, you've got, you know, international cooperation is, is ebbing at a time when it needs to be stronger than ever. And so this is, the, this is the thing that we really have to work on. The thing that's so insidious about climate change is that it, it's caused everywhere and it affects everywhere, mm. which means that all nations, all cultures around the world have to work together to solve it. Typically, we're not good at that. And the more isolationist and the more, the more you have populist leadership that emphasize differences and create an us versus them mentality and build walls and, you know, and, and believe in their own exceptionalism you know, as, a, as a culture or as a nation or whatever it is, the harder it's going to be to solve these, you know, this, this huge multilateral problem. Mm. And we live in an age of polarization as yes, well, exactly. don't we? When, right. when, what's been your experience, you know, at, the getting to these frontiers, getting to the next level, it's all about cooperation, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. You can't do it on your own. No, you have to cooperate. I mean, you see it at a team level, whether it's a, a film set or whether it's a, a, com a computer animation team mm. or whether it's an engineering team that are trying to build something or whether it's a team at sea under the very hard conditions trying to operate something and make it happen. You get like-minded people who have a goal and they work together. There's no better feeling in the world. Joe McGinnis, the guy I mentioned earlier, he's written a lot of books on, on leadership. He calls it team genius. The people aren't necessarily geniuses. The, the team as a whole is a genius. The team figures it out, figures out how to do something that they maybe even thought was impossible when they, when they went into it. Because one person will take up the slack and, or bring in a new idea and then everybody will act on it together. How did that idea for an upright submersible go down initially? <laughs> you know, just talking about that. Um, I don't know. I was just sitting with a couple of people on the, on the research ship on another expedition talking about, all right, well, what's the problem? You've got to get down through a seven-mile water column. We knew enough about submersible operations to know that you really ever explore horizontally only about a half mile or a mile maybe at the most. All right, so it's seven miles down, one mile horizontal, seven miles back up, so 14 to one ratio. Which way do you want to be the most hydrodynamically efficient? Vertically. So then I just drew a vertical torpedo. I said, that's what you got to build. <laughs> and everybody's like, yeah, let's build it. Did they, and did they come from a, from a film background, from an Not engineering background? No, they were, uh, one was a Titanic historian, the other one was a jet propulsion uh, laboratory uh, astrobiologist, and uh, there were a couple of robotics engineers. This was just like our little group on the research ship, just spitballing ideas. To what extent do you think robotics will be that next frontier? Will, will they already are. Um, mm. you know, we, uh, while it's tons of fun to dive to Titanic, mm. and uh, we still got most of our information and most of our amazing imagery by sending out a little robotic vehicle that I piloted down inside the ship and explored around for hours and hours. That was the most fun. So we will have our robotic emissaries that, that go out into environments that are too harsh for us or where they have to go for extended periods of time. The first glimpse we get under the ice of Europa and look at the ocean of Europa, which is bigger than the ocean of Earth, all the oceans of Earth combined, is going to be a robot. Mm. You know, the first time we, we look under the ice of Enceladus, the moon of Saturn, that we know now has hydrothermal activity, much like we have here on Earth, that's going to be a robot. But that requires making one's peace with the fact that it won't be it won't be human eyes, doesn't it? I mean, there's a moment upstairs where you're in, the, yeah, in yeah. the tiny capsule saying, I want to see this with my eyes. There is, and I have that feeling when I'm piloting a robotic vehicle. It still feels like an extension of me. It's your emissary. But when you send a vehicle on its own mission, and it's far away because of the speed of, of light that limits communication. If, some, if a robotic vehicle is operating out at Jupiter or even on Mars, you can have a light delay of 20 minutes, an hour, or whatever it is. So it's got to be more autonomous. At that point, it kind of takes the fun out of it. Nobody wanted to grow up to be a robot. You know, <laughs> they wanted to grow up to be an astronaut. Well, maybe if they saw Terminator. 
But I know the guys that are the people, men and women, that, that build these things. And there's, there's this concept from a book in the 80s called The Soul of the New Machine. The soul of the machine is the people that built it. They put their mind and their consciousness into that thing and then they send it. You know, mm -hmm. So I had a small part of the development of a stereoscopic camera system that's on the Mars Curiosity rover right now, driving around the surface of Mars. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm good friends with one of the people on the imaging team, and he and I together came up with the idea of, of the selfie. The, not, not, not the selfie, but <laughs> the really? selfie that it shoots of itself. So they've done 13 of these things now over a period of a five-year mission. And it takes its little uh, hand lens imaging camera and puts the arm way out here and then turns it around and shoots a mosaic like that. And it images itself on Mars. And then they compile the mosaic. And every single time you see a photograph of the Mars Curiosity rover, it's that shot. It's just in a different place. So here's me at this rock. Here's me at this rock. You know. You've harnessed the narcissism of the social yeah. media age. Do electric exactly. robots take exactly. selfies? It's a Philip K. Dick novel. It's a $4 billion selfie. <laughs> but he and I did the math. Every time you do another one, the unit cost goes down. <laughs> so I think, we're, I think we're down to $150 million a shot right now, something like that. And you're here in New Zealand. I'm going to open this up for questions. You're here in New Zealand. You, um, you, you live here part of part of the time you're here at the moment working? I'm here working. I'm, we're shooting in Auckland, and, uh, and uh, then I'll be back shooting in Wellington in uh, uh, March, uh, February, March, April, May of next year. And then we do all of our visual effects work here. So there are literally thousands of, of computer artists working in, uh, in Wellington on the, film, the films right now because we're doing Avatar 2, 3, and part of Avatar 4. And I'm written through the end of Avatar 5, so that's going to keep me busy for... At least a few more weeks. <laughs> like maybe the rest of my life, I don't know. Not that I'm not interested in Avatar, but I am particularly interested in some of the um, sort of non-fiction documentary work right. that you've got coming up. There's something coming out of Africa, which seems right. extraordinary. Uh, you know, going back to that idea of some of your um, heroines. Yeah, you well, know. this is the ultimate female empowerment story. Um, Maria Wilhelm, who's here, I don't know where you are, Maria, but anyway, uh, she works with me on, on this, and uh, uh, she developed a project with National Geographic uh, called uh, Akashinga, which means the brave ones, and it's about a, uh, uh, a group of women who are trained um, by a former SAS guy to be an anti-poaching squad, and they're highly organized, they're highly dedicated, and they're basically just village women from the, from the area in, uh, in Africa, and they go out and they stop the poachers. Uh, and the poachers are carrying, you know, AK-47s and things like that, and they raid them and they, they take them down in the middle of the night when they're not expecting it, and they, they, they get them arrested. And they literally are the brave ones, and it's an amazing story. And so that's a film that, we're, that we've, we've done a short version of it, and we're talking about blowing it up into a, a much bigger thing. Um, we just had a crew um, out on um, a ship that was going up to the Gackle Ridge in, uh, in the um, North Atlantic. It's up in the polar region. And they had a uh, small vehicle, a uh, robotic vehicle from Woods Hole Oceanographic called Nui, Narius, uh, Nariad Under Ice. So it's a fiber optic connected vehicle that could run in under the ice flows and go down and, and look at the hydrothermal vents. So I, was, I didn't get to go on that one, but you know, we, we had a film crew mm. on there, so that'll get seen on National Geographic. And we just released on Netflix um, a film called The Game Changers, Game Changers yeah. that we worked on for a few years. It was directed by Louis C. Hoyos, who did the Academy Award-winning documentary called The Cove about the dolphin slaughter in Japan. And this is about um, athletes, high-performance world athletes, top elite athletes who are living, uh, who are winning championships on 100% plant-based diets. So it's really about dismantling the sort of male-generated marketing myth of, or male-focused marketing myth of meat equals protein. Because even doctors fall prey to this idea that you need more protein, you've got to eat meat. Um, well, where did where does the cow get the pro, you know the protein from mm. grass? I'm not saying eat grass, but uh, <laughs> but anyway, it's a, it's a it's a myth, and it gets dismantled so effectively in this film 
that since the film dropped on Netflix, which has been about three weeks, um, the number of Google searches of plant-based proteins and plant-based uh, meal alternatives has gone up 350%. So you can see it through, you know, 2017, 2018, 2019, kind of earnshilling along like this, and then it goes, went, curve went vertical in three weeks. I, I would like to leave, we've got five minutes for some questions, if anybody has some questions. Who's got a question? Somebody young, this young man right here. I saw your hand go up. What was your favorite expedition? My favorite expedition? Yes. I think it was, um, it, it was a, a series of expeditions that we did for a film called Aliens of the Deep, where we went to different hydrothermal vents in the Atlantic and in the Pacific, and we saw just amazing, amazing, amazing animals, and um, it's like where the, where the super hot, superheated water comes up out of, the, out of the, the ocean bottom, and it forms these animal communities. Saw just incredible creatures. You can actually see it. We made a film called Aliens of the Deep and you can see what we saw. And I think you'll see what, see what I mean. But you can also, if you go to the exhibit, you can see, like some people like this big diaphanous jellyfish that we, we saw at a place called Lost City. Um, we called it the space bagel because we, we didn't know what it was. And <laughs> none of the Russian scientists on the ship knew what it was. We finally tracked it down and it was, it was something that had never been captured and had only been seen once before called Deepstaria enigmatica which means deep star enigma. So deep star was the submersible that saw it the first time. I saw it the second time. And an enigma is a mystery. They didn't know what it was, and they still don't really know what it is. <laughs> Thank you. We've run over, we're out of time. But please join me, ladies and gentlemen, in thanking Mr. James Cameron. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Noel. Delightful.